0: Well, hi, everyone. My name is Courtney McCorder. I am a youth director at Rat Creek Fellowship. It's a church on Lookout Mountain. It's a plant of Lookout Mountain Prez. Um, And I have been there for, I guess, six years now. So female youth director, kind of edgy for the PCA, but here we are. Um, So about three years ago, I went back to school. I knew I wanted some, like, training and some tools in my tool belt, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Thing that we're going to talk about. But um, so I knew I wanted to stay at Rock Creek and Richmond Graduate University was in town, and so I started going back to school. And um, yeah, so anyway, I've been there the last three years, and I'm going to graduate in May. I'm very excited about that. And I've been doing um, so in addition to being at Rock Creek, I've done I'm participating in a grief group weekly, so it's kind of unanticipated or unexpected grief. And then I've been at Covenant College, which is where I went to school, uh, meeting with their students. So just a little bit about me and like what I've been doing. But um, if there's a Venn diagram of like counseling and youth ministry, there's this really beautiful sweet spot of a lot of things that have been really, really helpful to me in my ministry. And so um, I was really, I'm excited to kind of share a few of those things with you today. Um, So I'm gonna pray. Mostly for me, but also for you. And then we'll get started. So, um, Lord Jesus, I'm really grateful to be here. And I'm thankful for this ministry. It's been a lifeline to me and to my ministry at Rock Creek. And um, I pray that you would be with me. Give me the words that you would have everyone hear. I think at the end of this week, it can be exhausting. Um, There's a lot of content, and it feels like you are drinking from a fire hydrant. And so I pray that this would be really practical and helpful and useful to us, and that you would use this time well. So come and be with me and be with us in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Okay, so I titled this, How to Help Students Who Are Struggling, which you're not going to know exactly all of that in the next 45 minutes, but um, yeah, I was just kind of trying to think, like when I thought about kind of putting this 45-minute section together that moment when you're sitting with a student and they're sharing something really hard with you and the panic button is going off in your head and you don't know what to say and you don't know how to help them and you want to and so just kind of trying to give some like framework for that conversation and what that would be like um so I was trying to think we're going to talk about shame just to give it and you're like great awesome um we're going to talk about shame and how that's just kind of in the room it's in us and it's with everyone it's universal We'll talk a little bit about empathy and what it looks like to meet students and connect with them in their shame. And then we're going to talk practically about how to listen well and active listening skills. And so just like one tool that you can put in your tool belt to kind of take away from that. Um, so I was trying to think about shame and I was, I was actually talking to some of my high school girls and I was like, you know, I'm trying to think about a story that would be helpful to share about like a shameful experience in my life or something. And <laughs> one of my students was like, I think you have plenty of those. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, "Thanks." Nothing like youth ministry to humble you. Um, I was like, "Thanks so much." But there was one story that I thought of that was like, it's not too personal, but it was like this <laughs> this embarrassing moment in my life. So, I was 15. I have a twin brother. If that's helpful to know. And so we always like when you have a twin, you're kind of doing all the milestones together, like. And so we were learning how to drive, and I just had no interest in learning how to drive. I was like, I have a twin. I have a mom, dad. Was like, they can all drive for me. I don't know why I need to drive. But my mom was like, you really have to learn how to drive. And I felt like when you're always comparing, especially if you have a twin, and my brother got behind the car, and he got behind the, driver, the wheel, and he just knew where everything was. Like, which maybe everyone else does, but I didn't, and so he, I just felt like he knew how to operate the vehicle and all this sort of stuff, so I was already, like, feeling that, so my mom was like, hey, like, you just, we'll drive around this, like, business development center, there's not gonna be a lot of cars, you can just learn how to drive, it's like, okay, we'll do it, well, my best friend, Nicole's in the back seat, and my brother, my twin brother, my mom's in the front seat, and we had parked at Lefty's Barbecue, which is kind of, Anyway, that's irrelevant, but my brother's best friend worked at lefties, Andrew, and I had a big crush on Andrew. and so he was there, and then my brother's friend Phil was there. So basically what you need to know is everyone that I could have cared about here, like seeing this was there. And so we were driving around. It was, it was going okay, I was definitely nervous. I do not like failing. I don't who does, but it's definitely a button for me. Um, so we're driving around and we're pulling we're coming back to Lefty's barbecue where we started and we're pulling into this parking spot and my mom some might say she overreacted i think she overreacted she was like Courtney, stop and she like is like sprawled out like she's about to die i was like okay and i panicked and so i i was like okay and i panicked and i meant to slam on the brake i slammed on the gas went up onto the curb as this man is walking out of Lefty's Barbecue, and I have now pinned him between the glass and my mom's Dodge Caravan. And he was like, I mean, he looked shocked. <laughs> and I start laughing because that's a coping mechanism for me. And so I'm not sure what happened there. But I start laughing and because I'm feeling all this shame. And my friend Andrew, who I had a crush on at the time, pokes his head out and he just looks at me, he looks at the car, and then he shakes his head. And I was like, oh. I was just, like, I wanted to die. And it was this moment, like, I was just like, oh, my gosh, it's, this is in front of everyone. Um, so that was an experience of shame for me. But it hit all of these buttons, right? Like, it's funny, but it also hit all these buttons for me. Like, I'm a failure. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. My brother knew what he was doing, and I didn't know. And I, oh, you're so stupid. You should have known how to drive. Um, So I'm not really sure what's happening here, but... Right, he left immediately. (laughs) Like, he was like, he was like, I gotta get out of here. (laughs) And he probably was like, what is this crazy teenage girl? Um, But shame, I took a lot of this from Brene Brown, and if you've already hung out with Brene Brown or learned some of her stuff, then we're just gonna refresh. But shame brings disconnection. It brings isolation. It says, like, I can't be in community. Um, it's this fear that if something, like, if you knew this about me, then you wouldn't want to be with me. You wouldn't feel, like, worthy of connection or belonging. It's universal. We all have it. Uh, Brene Brown says that the only people who don't have it are sociopaths who have no em- a capacity for empathy or shame. So in the option of, like, shame or being a sociopath, you probably want to choose shame. Um, We all have it, and the less you talk about it, the more we have it. And so shame grows in silence and secrecy. And it's triggered for us in different ways. So I was thinking about our students, the ways that shame kind of comes up in the room. Um, This could be body image, like Julie Lowe talked about yesterday. Academics, sports, uh, friendships, like their friend group especially, like their friend group stops talking to them. Like that's a really huge deal because you're kind of moving out of your family into your tribe um pornography is a big one and being at covenant has been kind of really cool for me because i've been able to see just a few years out of youth ministry and a lot of the females i've met with have like have a severe problem with pornography but no one's really talking about how that impacts females and so there's even more shame because it's like well isn't that a guy's issue then i must really be disgusting um And I, like, the RYM podcast I recently listened to with Ellen Dacus, she talks about that, and I love that we're starting that conversation and helping it to be, like, a normalizing that it is a female problem, too. Um, Sexual addiction, and even, like, so those are, like, really big things, right? But it can even be, like, all of my friends are getting asked out to the dance, and I'm not getting asked out. Like, why is that happening? Why have I never been asked to prom? And, like, that can bring out shame in the room. Um, So... This thing is not working. Do I? Uh, okay, well, I'm just going to keep going, but eventually it'll catch up. This, try it. Oh, yeah. Great. So the first part that we see this is in the garden, right? In the end of Genesis 1, it says Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I think it's cool to think about that. Like, they added that in, that Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they didn't feel any shame. Um And afterwards, we see. Where do I point it? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, But we see God walking in the garden. They've sinned, right? And then they hide. They immediately are like, we hear God walking in the cool of the garden, and they don't know what to do, and they hide. And they, what do they do? They make clothes. They make them out of fig leaves, and they are afraid, and they are naked, and so they hid, and. I read this article once that this guy was talking about his little girl who had scraped her knee, and he was going to put this Band-Aid on, and it had, like, princesses or something like that. And she was like, no, I'll look stupid, and all my friends will make fun of me. And he's like, who told you you were stupid? Like, and this, I, I don't know, who knows what God's tone of voice was, but I loved a picture that it's this tender voice of God that he's saying, like, who told you? Who told you you were naked? Like, who told you that you were like stupid. Who told you you were bad at sports? Who told you that nobody likes you? Like, who told you this? And so we hear them, God moving towards them in their shame. Um, yeah, I'm ready. Oh, thanks. Um, you're there for me. Thank you. Uh, so shame is this, like, I'm not enough. That's what Brene Browns, it says, it has two tapes. It's I'm not enough and who do you think you are? Um, she talks about them as gremlins, and I think that's a really helpful metaphor, because when you think about shame, you think about, like, um, she talks about this idea of, like, she's writing, and she's not really a good writer, and she's, like, preparing all this stuff, and she can't do it. Like, she, it's just overwhelming, and it's, like, taking over her, and so she calls her friend, and her friend's like, Who, what are your gremlins, and what are the things that are going off, because it's different for each of us, but gremlins, when they come to the light, they lose their power, they die, and so just that idea that like when we're talking about our shame, it's losing some of its power by talking through it. Um, so it could be like I'm not thin enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fast enough. Comparing to our friends, um, it's kind of what shame looks like in us. Like what is that like for us? Ready. Um, shame is different than guilt. So I think this is helpful for us because we think like, well, guilt is adaptive. It's, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I cheated on this test. I shouldn't have done it, and I expect punishment. There's a book that I looked at a lot. It's called The Soul of Shame, and he talks about guilt happens in a courtroom. Like, you're expecting punishment. You're there, but shame is this, like, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. It leads to hiding. It leads to disconnection. If you knew this about me, you wouldn't want to be friends with me. If you knew that I cheated on my boyfriend, all my friends are not going to want to be friends with me because I did this horrible thing. It. He, he talks about like shame happens in community. It means I'm disconnected and isolated. And it breeds three things, fear, blame, like a way to discharge our comfort, and disconnection. Um, so next, yes. But that's not the end of the story, right, that Adam and Eve just hide. God makes clothing for them. He makes clothing for them out of animal skins. And he makes them a better garment than what they were hiding. And so he takes away their fig leaves, but he clothes them with a better garment. Um, And that's what we have to offer our students. We, like, this is a picture, right? This clothing with a better garment is a picture of our Savior to come who's going to take all of our shame. And he takes, and he clothes us with his righteousness. And so that's Really, a beautiful thing because I think Julie Lowe was talking about this yesterday and this idea that, like, well, don't just trade your opinion for my opinion. You're saying with a student, be like, well, I think that you're pretty. Like, that's not really helpful. Like, it's fine, but it's just trading another opinion. But instead, saying, like, we have a God who says that we belong, that we're worthy of belonging, and that we, um, yeah, that we have a place in the story. Like, the song that we just sang, I loved it. It was like that He takes our shame and we have this, like, we're folded into the family of God. Um, and so we have a better garment to offer them than their shame and these fig leaves that they're hiding behind. And when you think about what are they hiding behind in these fig leaves, are they hiding behind their academic success? Are they hiding behind their sports and their, um, are they hiding behind like always having a boyfriend or girlfriend? Like what are they hiding behind and how can we offer them a better garment? Um, and God doesn't just remove their clothes and shame them either, right? Like he doesn't just remove them and be like, Hey, Why did you think you're naked? He's not, like, condemning them, but he's instead clothing them. And I think that's a really tender act of our God. Um, And this idea that shamed people shame people. And so we have to know our own shame in the room, right? We have to know what's going on in us. Otherwise, we're going to just dismiss our students. We're not going to really understand what that's like. So we're talking right now about shame, and it's this cognitive thing. But shame is, like, a feeling, It's like a gut. Um, I was trying to think of a moment recently. It's hard to talk about shame and not be like, hey, here's all my shame. Um, But I was trying to think about a time recently that I felt that in my gut. So I work at Rock Creek Fellowship, and I love my church. Like, I really do, and I know that's not the case for, like, I have really great relationships with the staff there, and I really love it. But there is a hard dynamic. I'm 27, I'm single, and might be the only single person, there might be like one or two other people, so it's just not the dynamic of our church, and so, and the narrative of my church is a lot of people who got married right out of college, and so I just feel alone in that way, Um, and so we were at a staff meeting recently, and I had missed the staff meeting before, so I was already kind of behind on the conversation, and we were talking about, as a church, wanting to do a newlywed game, which sounds, you know, hard, anyway, but so a newlywed game for Valentine's Day, and have everyone come and be there. And I just felt it in my gut, this shame. Like, I don't belong. Like, this, tur- this is for everyone else but not for me. There's something wrong with me because I'm not married. And, like, I just felt it in my gut. And actually, I'm a crier, so it's not surprising that I wanted to cry. But I did, like, it kind of washed over me. And so if you're with a student and they're talking about something that triggers that button for you, you have to be aware of what your buttons are. You have to be aware of what shame you have because otherwise it's just you're going to dismiss it or move away from it because nobody wants to sit there and so I'm not saying work it out in that conversation (laughs) that's not the time but notice it and say like I need to talk to somebody else about that like I need to talk to a mentor or a counselor or my pastor and work through our own shame because if we we can only take students as far as we've been and so if we haven't done the work in ourselves we can't take them there and so we have to work through kind of that in our own lives. Is that, I'm now done talking about shame. <laughs> that feels good to everyone, but does anyone have any questions about that? Okay, we'll keep, we'll keep going. Um, yes, thanks. So guys, I maybe I have, a, like, I love Brene Brown. I'm in her fan club, I guess, <laughs> but she says you're imperfect, you're wired for struggle, and you're worthy of love and belonging. Um, in order to have connection, we have to be really seen. I, like, you know how sometimes people say things and they just stick with you? A couple years ago at Wild tea there's a guy who's talking, and he said, we are broken in relationships, and we're healed in relationships. And I just, like, love thinking about that. Like, our deepest pain comes from relationships, but God also uses our relationships to heal each other. And so that's really amazing that we get to meet with our students and in those moments feel that connection with them. Um, at our core, like, our students want love and belonging, like, That's what they want. And we're hardwired for connection. God made us out of a relational God for relationships. And so they are, especially in this technology age, they're longing for deep conversations. They're longing for connection. They're longing to be seen and known and to have a place where you can know them. Um, Also, I think it's important to know, like, it's a long game. Like, you just because you say your shame and you bring it out there, you're disarming the bomb, but you're not completely removing it. That's another, pro- another process, right? And so we can like take a deep breath and be patient with ourselves because we can just walk slowly with our students through this. It's not going to just be like one conversation and a quick fix. I wish life was like that. I think it would be easier, but that's not always the case. And so just remembering that in that connection with our students, like my shame is not removed just because I talked to somebody about it one time, like it is a process. And so it's a process that we're in with our students. Um, yes, the next one. Okay, I didn't actually know how to fit this in, but I think it's worth saying. And so I'm just kind of put it in this part. Renee Brown again, are you surprised? Um, she talks about a marble jar. And so her daughter came home, she was like in seventh grade and came home and all of her friends didn't sit with her at lunch. And they were kind of ignoring her, and she just felt so like, just uh, yeah, she just felt hurt by her friends. And she, Brene said, she started talking to her daughter about like, what does it actually mean to trust somebody? What does it look like to trust somebody? And she remembered that in third grade, one of her kids' teachers had this marble jar, and so every time that they did something good, they put something in the marble jar. And so if they like followed the rules, turned in homework, all these sorts of things, they would put things in the marble jar. Well, she was like, "I think that's kind of how trust works. Like, it's all of these little moments that trust isn't created in these big moments. It's created in little moments. And so, just that idea that like we can take the pressure off of ourselves. When I came to Rock Creek, well, I mean, I was the same age as twenty as Taylor Swift, so was twenty-two, and I was like expecting everything to change all of a sudden. Like, I'm here. Like, let's start a youth group." And that's not how life works, turns out. But <laughs> I was expecting to have these, like, really deep conversations with students already and for them to trust me. But I don't do that with people. Why would my students do that? And so I think just like this, it's, this is a helpful reminder to me. Like those moments that you show up when you said you'd show up, that's a marble in the marble jar. Those moments that you text them and tell them you're praying for their tests and they ask you to, it's a marble in the marble jar. Those moments that you went to ice cream and you're like, we didn't really even talk about anything, but we just kind of hung out. It's a marble in the marble jar. You're showing that you're a safe person, that you're trustworthy, and you support them, and you're showing up. And so that just, like, relieves the pressure because I feel like we are feeling like we always have to have these hard conversations. But when that time comes, when they think, like, I really need to tell somebody that, if there are a lot of marbles in that jar and you have this relationship built up with them, they're going to think of you and want to trust you with that information because you've proven yourself trustworthy in those little moments. Um, so who knows how that fits in, but I think it's helpful. Um, so empathy. Empathy is also this word that is, like, charged right now. I think shame and empathy, and everyone's using it, and you're like, I don't know. At least for me, I'm like, what do we actually mean by that? So I was reading this book for school, and it was talking about empathy and, like, having empathy with other people and um he, th- this guy tells a story, so he had a, hit a girl that he was working with, he was a counselor, and so he, this client of his was maybe like 17 or 18, she was a high school student, and she had this hard relationship with her dad, like, just all these, like, it, nothing major, but there's these patterns that were formed, and she was like, he's always negative, he's always, like, I don't know, just all these things that were kind of part of it, like, I just, I don't know, my dad's always my dad, I can't talk to him, that sort of thing, and so the counselor is like, hey, you're on your way, like you're going to go to college soon. It's just going to be you and your dad. Why don't you just like see, just see what this car ride could be like and kind of give it another chance with your dad. And so she's in the car and they're, I guess they're in the mountains and she's going off to school and she sees this like, they're kind of going through the valley. And I can picture this like maybe in North Carolina or somewhere like that. And they're going through and they see this river kind of off to the side. And she remembers looking out the window, and she sees, like, it's beautiful, it's crystal clear, she can see all the rocks, the sun shining, and she remembers thinking to herself, wow, that's so beautiful. Like, I really love, like, just remembering this, like, scene and thinking it was so beautiful. And her dad says, he's like, oh, that stream looks so trashy. Like, they need to clean out all that trash, like, all this stuff. And she's like, of course. That's just like my dad, always. He's always saying these negative things, and just totally shuts her down. Which I can... I can picture these situations with my roommates or with friends who've known for a long time and you just expect them to act the way that you expect them to do. And so she just shuts down and they ride the rest of the car ride in silence. Well, a few years later, she is now driving to college herself, not with her dad. She's in the driver's seat and she's driving through this, like, the same, the same exact road that they were on before. And she sees this stream over to the right, but to the left, she sees this ditch full of stream on the left full of trash. And full of garbage and just remembers thinking, well, I didn't have my dad's perspective. I wasn't in his window. And so she had just totally put her experience on him that they were seeing the same thing. And so I think empathy can be like that. It's not what's out my window, it's what's out your window. Like, what do I see? Like, what can I see that's like, what is it like for you? What's it when we think about our students? Like, what is it like for this student in this family and in this school with these friends? Like have to think about what's their perspective in their window. Next. Okay, I have this video for us to watch, and I think we will have time. So hopefully it will work. Ah. Uh, brief moment. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Oh, (laughs) you can go to the next one. Um, uh, Sorry about that. Um, I think that's a helpful, well, I like the drawings and the connection, but just that idea of, like, empathy is not, like, at least statements like that, they distance us from that. They make us not want to connect, right? I think I see this in my grief group a lot. A few of the. (laughs) I believe in (laughs) y'all. It's so good we're watching it again. Thank you. Uh, I think I see that a lot in my grief group. There's a few parents who have lost children or things like that and um, or have spouses with terminal illness. and what they need is the ministry of Presence. They need us to be with them in those moments and grieving with them um, and not just trying to put on things like that. I love that she says like empathy rarely starts with at least, like because at least means like it doesn't matter and I'm distancing and minimizing. but in those moments, just connecting and being with them. Um, A woman in my group calls it the black hole. She's like, I love when people can climb in the black hole with me, because it feels like that. It's all-consuming, and people who are willing to do that. It's an act of love, and when we think about, um, Diane Langberg uses this term called incarnational love, and that idea that Jesus has entered into our suffering. He willingly chose to enter into our suffering, and so we out of that, choose to enter into other people's suffering for the sake of them. Um, And it means we get some suffering on us. You know, it means that it costs us something. So our students really benefit greatly when we enter into their world and perspective. And that means sometimes that we're learners of their world. It means I'm not gonna put my experience on you. Maybe in high school, like you just weren't all that interested in dating. But the student sitting in front of you, that's all they can think about. Well, then don't say, well, I wasn't interested, so they're not going to be interested. Like, you want to know what is it like. Like, we want to be curious and learners of their world. Um, And the first time we can hear something, it just can be uncomfortable. And so we're trying in any ways just to, like, grab any sort of experience (laughs) that we know. Like, well, I have a friend whose parents got divorced, and this is what happened, or things like that. And instead, kind of just being listeners and... um, I think this can also happen if we've encountered something a lot of times. So let's say you have a family in your church that the parents are getting divorced and you have this other family and the parents are getting divorced. Well, it could really, those kids have way different experiences. You have, what's their par- relationship with their parents like? We can't just make things like this situation fits here and so it's going to fit here. And so we have to like really be l- learners of their story. And so that, I think that requires a lot of listening. Uh, yeah, Next. Um, okay, this is a helpful thing for me, just informationally, to have empathy for our students. Uh, the guy talking last night, Reverend Wilson, is that his name? He was saying how teenagers are crazy. Well, actually, I was reading this book, um, super helpful, and I'm going to recommend it. It's called Untangled, and it's guiding teenage girls through the seven transitions into adulthood. It's this woman, Lisa DeMoore. I heard her speak at, GPA at uh school in our town. And it's really actually helpful for parents. I would put it in their hands for sure. But I think it's helpful for teenage girls and guys for sure. Um, But she was really amazing. And she said that teenagers, you have to make sure, she's like a psychologist, she's like you have to make sure on the paperwork that you know they're a teenager. Otherwise they can come across as a psychotic adult. Like their emotions are all over the place. And you've experienced this, right? Like you're sitting with a teenager and they're like, I'm having the worst day ever. My life is crazy, blah, blah, blah. They get a text. It's from their crush. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is the best day ever. And you're like, what just happened? Like, it's just like, it's like bizarre. It's a roller coaster. Um, So it's actually helpful to know about their brain. from ages 6 to 11, teenagers go, or children go through a period of latency. Basically, it's very calm waters. They've come out of being a toddler where it's just, like, crazy. And it's very calm. But then during adolescence, their brain, like, remodels dramatically r- around age 12. Um, and we usually blame this on hormones, right? We're like, raging hormones, those guys are crazy. But it's actually, the impact is kind of indirect at best. It's really what's happening in their brain that's affecting their emotions more than their hormones. It's, it can't help. Their hormones aren't helping, for sure. But it's not the cause. Um, so, during Adolescent, the brain remodels dramatically, going from lower to higher remodeling. So it's like a bottom-up remodeling. So the front of our brain is our prefrontal cortex. I'm not a neurologist, and if there is a neurologist in here, feel free to come up. But, um, but I know <laughs> this is this is what I've gathered. So it moves from the back to the front, and our prefrontal cortex is where we kind of get all of our logic and judgment and understanding, and during adoles- adolescence, the lower portion of the brain is being remodeled, but the higher portion isn't. It's not until age 25 that your prefrontal cortex is, de- is fully developed. Um, so that means it heightens the brain's emotional reactions, indicating that the feeling centers beneath the cortex are more sensitive in teens than in childrens or adults. So they did this research study. If you go to the next one. Um, so they showed images of happy, calm, and fearful faces to children, teens, and adults while monitoring the activity of their amygdala. So it's kind of a key player in the emotional reactions of the limbic system. And compared to children and adults, the teens reacted strongly to fearful or happy faces. And so this woman says, emotional input rings like a gong for teenagers and a chime for everyone else. And so they, like the children and adults kind of reacted lower, but the teenagers strongly reacted to those faces. Um, So the next one. Like I said, at age 25, the frontal cortex, the part of the brain that exerts a calming, rational influence, isn't formed until age 25. So we think with our our prefrontal cortex, we think with our rational part. Of course, we have emotions, like we all have emotions. But we can, like, with our brains, kind of outweigh the logic and the emotion. But our students, it's just not fully formed yet. so the bottom line is that what a teenager broadcasts matches what he or she experiences. It really is that intense, and so we can take their fearing, feelings seriously regardless of how overblown they might seem. Um, I was thinking about, like, <laughs> this, this happens, right, when you, like, you go to RYM and one of your students starts texting with another boy that she meets at RYM or something, and a couple weeks later they're, they've broken up and they've only even known each other for like two weeks and you're like, it can't be that bad. And you're just like, this helps have empathy for them, right? It helps saying like, yeah, that actually does feel that real to you. Like if you're feeling that angry, it feels that angry to you. Like whatever they're broadcasting, it is what they're experiencing. And we can help bring the logic part of the, like our brains into that conversation, but at least helps us not to blow them off or dismiss them. Um, so the next one. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so this is the main thing. Would you guys hand out those handouts? Um, so listening. Uh, I put this quote up. Some friends and I were on the way back from a ski trip, and my, we have some loud personalities in our friend group, and my fr- friend Wit was talking, like, my friend Taylor was talking, and my friend Wit just totally overblew her, just, like, took over with the story. And she is kind of snarky, and so she just said, I'm sorry, Wit, did the middle of my sentence interrupt the beginning of yours? So, so that's funny and snarky. <laughs> it's like, oof, that's true. Um, so the next one. This is a quote from hover but listening can be a really powerful tool, and we don't even think about how powerful it is that we have it at our in our tool belts, but he says the first experience that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to His words, so the beginning of love for the brethren is lis- learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that He not only gives us His word, but He also lends us His ear. So it is His work that we do for our brothers when we learn to listen f- to listen to Him. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. I think we all do this. Like, we are like, that. at least that for me is what happens when I have a student struggling. I'm like, what do I say to fix this? How do I make it better? And a lot of times, like, we can, our first act should be to listen and to really meet them in those moments. Um, So roadblocks to good listening i love parks and rec i think it's really funny so i use a little theme here so what are some things that keep us from good listening autobiographical listening uh what my high school guys they call this being a story pirate (laughs) like when you're like taking over and you're like somebody starts telling a story and you're like no i'm gonna tell a story like it's gonna be better um So somehow everything you say relates back to that person and their stories. And they're not really listening. You're just competing with storytelling. Um, So that can be a roadblock. Interrupting. Uh, So, I mean, that's, right? It feels terrible to be interrupted. Like, you felt this when somebody, you're in the middle of saying something and somebody just interrupts you and stops listening to you. It just can feel so, I don't know, jarring um, and so the only time we want to interrupt is when we want them to say more. Like, we want to get them to keep exploring. Next one. Assuming what the other person has to say. Um, so there's a, Bonhoeffer says again, there's a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It's an impatient, inattentive listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus to get rid of the other person. So... And then the last one is kind of being too quick to offer advice. We can offer quick feelings, right? It's uncomfortable to be in somebody else's pain. And so a lot of times we're just quick to be like, hey, have you prayed about it? Have you trusted God? Here's some quick fixes. And we're too quick to go there before we've really even heard what's going on. Um, So, (laughs) I will stop, I promise. Um, So, so. The next part is just kind of some listening skills. This is going to feel basic, and it might, but maybe maybe that's good. You're all exhausted, and it's at the end of the week, and you just need some helpful reminders. But um, the first thing is, like, attending. Like, what can you do just with your actual body and things that you can do to, like, make sure that you're somebody knows that you're listening to them? So the first is concentrate on the person speaking, which seems obvious, but we don't do that all the time, right? Like, we... <laughs> I can be a terrible listener sometimes. I'm thinking about all the things I need to do. I'm thinking about the email I need to send out. I'm thinking about all these other things. I thought of Dory, you know, she's like, wait, she's like all over the place. You're like, what's happening? And so you can tell when someone's not actually listening to you. Like, you can, and it doesn't feel good. And so really just being like, you know what, when I'm with this student, when I've carved out this time, I'm just going to concentrate on them. I'm going to put my to-do list away, and I'm going to focus on them. The second Putting your phone out of sight, they did this study where, um, I won't read the whole quote to you, but basically, like, just having your phone out on the table, like, let's say you go to Chick-fil-A for milkshakes or something, and your phone's on the table, your student is waiting to be interrupted, and they're waiting for a call to come, and so you have less quality of conversation when you do that. You're making less eye contact. Um... You miss subtle cues, facial expressions. So just, like, that's so helpful. Like, just put your phone away. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your purse. And don't, like, don't look at it while you're with your student. And don't have it out because it is, like, it just brings disconnection. <laughs> Pay attention to body language. Um, at school, we learned this, like, acronym SOLAR, which I don't know if it's helpful, but here we go. Um, you want to be square and open. You, so square is S, open for O. L is leaning forward. E is eye contact. Like you want to make eye contact with a person. I know this sounds simple, but we don't always do it. Um, and you want to be relaxed and stayed calm. You kind of want to have an open posture and tell them like, even your body communicates. You can tell when someone's like, our body communicates a lot without even our words. There's so many nonverbal cues. And so you want to just have this open posture with your students and letting them know you're interested. And then suspending your agenda, which is so hard for me because I'm always thinking as people are talking about what I want to say next or where I want to go with the conversation. And so real listening means we're setting all that aside. Um, the good advice we want to give the verse, we want to really just listen and keep exploring with them before we move to that. We just want to be slower to like speak and quicker to listen. Um, and we don't perform. We don't sit there thinking like, am I being a good listener right now? (laughs) Look at me, listen to me. Am I being a good help to you? That is, like, such a struggle for me. I want students to really think I'm helpful to them. And so instead, like, setting that aside and really, like, focusing on them. Um, so your handout, this is kind of where, like, this is just one tool that I think is helpful in all of this. So when we're thinking about meeting with our students. Uh, let me look at the time. I'll not tell you all. Uh, okay. So when we think about meeting with our students, like, so I did a, we did a class. I took a whole semester class on learning how to listen and it was all this kind of stuff, which is just wild that you don't really think about all that you don't do to be a good listener. But so we had to record ourselves. Turns out in counseling school, you have to record yourself all the time and it's terrible. Who wants to watch a video of yourself? No one. Um, It's awful. And especially not a video of yourself listening (laughs) when you're terrible at it. And so we had to sit down and record ourselves for 10 minutes and we each had to come up with a problem that was like, very relevant and a real problem to us. And so this girl was sitting down and she started telling me about her parents got a divorce and she didn't really know it was coming. She's married and I started asking all the questions. We're not allowed to ask questions the whole semester. We can't ask any questions in these videos and I just started asking all the questions and because that's all that's all I knew how to do and I saw her shut down. Like because I was asking and some of it was the questions I was asking but it was also like wasn't I wasn't finding what it meant to her. I was just following my curiosity with these questions. And so we've we learned this tool called active listening or reflective listening, and it's a way to invite the other person to keep exploring without asking questions. Um, and it it does feel weird, but then it actually works. Like the next week, I didn't. I didn't ask any questions. I used the reflective listening, and she did all the work of exploring for herself, and I was there and putting words to it and language and meaning, but she was doing the work of exploring about what it meant to her. What I'm saying is, like, questions are not bad. You should ask questions. That would be terrible if I would say you shouldn't, but this is that's a muscle you probably have worked out. And so this would be a muscle that you can work on in addition to that. It's just another tool. And especially when you don't know what to say, then you can keep helping them explore. Um, so reflecting. There's two parts of it. Um, yeah, go to the next one. Sorry. So advantages of reflecting, reflective listening. It lets the person know that we hear them, that we care for them, and we support them. Um, it gives feedback on what they say and how we heard it. You check your accuracy in what you heard. It helps us to stay focused and attentive to reflect content, and it invites the other person to explore. Um, so it sounds really silly because essentially you're paraphrasing what you just heard and you're putting some feeling words to it, but it really does feel so good when someone does it because you can just keep it's this posture of like, I want to hear more, keep telling me. Um, so we're gonna talk about two things. There's the content, the external, like what happened, and then there's the internal. Well, what does that mean for you? You brought it up. Like, it must mean something to you. So the, the content, even knows where I am on this, um, is verbally summarizing back to the person the content or the facts of what they said. So um, a student was in class, and the teacher was really frustrated that day and ended up giving them a test, and they, it was, they weren't sure that it was happening. Okay, well, that's all the content. So you can be like, wow, it sounds like your teacher was really frustrated, she ended up assigning a test for Friday and you had no idea it was coming. Like, that is just the content of what you just heard and it helps them, it helps know that like, yeah, you just heard what I said. So you can start this off with like, it sounds like, it might be that, it seems as though, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's almost like, and a great thing with this, like responding with the content to our students is that we get to check if we heard them right. Because if you say that, the, I like, a lot of times in the counseling room and even when I'm doing one-on-one with students, they're like, no, that's not it. And you're like, great. Well, then let's figure out what it is. Because if I heard you wrong, then I'm going Anything we do next is gonna be wrong. So like, it helps to kind of check yourself and feel like, am I hearing this right? Uh, yeah, the next one maybe. It sounds like it's void of emotion, but it's not. It's actually. It feels so wonderful when you're listening to. Like it really does. <laughs> it feels like such an act of love. And it's not just parroting. It's not just repeating back what you heard. And it's not curiosity seeking. Like if you tell me that example of the student like, and with a teacher, it's not like, oh, well, is your teacher married? What's happening? Or any of those other questions that maybe your curiosity would want to know, but it's not connected to that meaning for them. And so this is like helping to kind of connect to that. Um, So that would be the external, like what actually happened. And the internal would be the meaning. Like what does it actually mean for you? Um, So asking like this, what you're asking in your head is, how does this impact the student emotionally, and how would I feel if I were this student? So the content plus the feeling equals the meaning. Um, actually I actually have another handout that I might have you guys hand out. This is like, who knows if you'll like it, but it's a feeling wheel, and I think that they're really helpful. Thank you. Um in this wheel, it has, like, peaceful, sad, mad, scared, powerful, joyful. Those are the feelings in the middle. And then outside of it are more feelings connected to those feelings and even more. And so it helps, it helps have a good vocabulary because you can say, like, I feel mad, but, like, maybe hostile is a better word that really feels like it connects. And so having that vocabulary really is helpful. Um, so do what you want with that, but I think it might be helpful. Um, so the kind of, the way that it, you can make it your own, like don't be a weirdo and like say weird things, but, but like a, like the outline of it would be like, you feel blank because blank. Like, so if we'll go to the next slide, I have some examples of this. You feel overwhelmed because you have so much work to do and you don't know how you're going to end up getting it done. You feel sad because your dog is sick and you love your dog. Like you've loved your dog and had, it's your family dog. That makes If you're a dog person, that would be me. Um, you feel exhausted because you've had such a busy week and you're not really sure how you're going to get it all done. You feel excited because you got the role you wanted in the play and you've always wanted to be the lead role. Um, you feel energized because it's the beginning of the school year. You feel glad because Miss Spirit's your teacher and she's really awesome and you weren't sure if you are going to get her. Um, you feel annoyed because there are so many assignments and it doesn't feel like all the teachers know how many assignments you have and you feel overwhelmed. So kind of that like... I use that framework, but it's this that you feel this because this. And when somebody does that, when they connect a feeling for you, and you're like, yeah, you feel lonely. Like, it really can feel so powerful. It's like, yeah, I didn't realize I was even feeling lonely until you said that word. Um, It creates an interchangeable base. So it's kind of this, like, ideally what we want our students to feel like they're sitting down with a mirror. Like, we're projecting back to them all their feelings, and they're able to sort it out. And so it's like a mirror in front of them. Um, I use this other book, The Lost Art of Listening, and I, I think it really is helpful, and I can, I don't, I'll give you these resources if you want them, but he says, however it's phrased, a good listener's response makes you feel understood, and it invites you to say more. And so just that open posture and that inviting, like, I want you to keep telling me more about this. Um. Maybe I'll to the next one. So I have some examples here. So Sarah. I just put, like, generic names and names I don't have in my youth group. But um, so the listeners, like, you're feeling pretty anxious about your friend's birthday party this weekend because of all the recent tension in your friend group. So the feeling would be, like, I'm nervous or I'm anxious. And then the content would be because of all the friend group dynamics. So Sarah's like, yes, I'm feeling so anxious, so much that I don't really want to go. But at the same time, I really love Emily, and I don't want to miss her birthday. So if that example keeps going, then the listener can say, because you and Emily are good friends, and you care about her, that makes you want to go to her birthday. So the feeling is love and wanting to go to the birthday. And then Sarah says, yes, I do love Emily, and I want to celebrate her and be there with her. But at the same time, it's hard to be there knowing those girls have been talking about me behind my back. I'm always so afraid of what they're going to say about me. They just gave you a lot of content there without even having to ask a question. Um, This is another example with Matt. I don't know Matt, so. um, I hate Jonathan. He said I was stupid in front of all of my friends. I can never go back to school again. Everyone thinks I'm so dumb. So you as the listener, that sounds really hurtful. You're feeling angry because he said that in front of all your friends. It's frustrating when a friend disappoints you that way. And the feeling would be angry or embarrassed and the content would be his friend called him stupid in front of everyone. And so you can match that, you can be there, instead of just saying, like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Like, you're not dismissing it, but you're saying, like, I understand that feeling. Um, And lastly, this quote, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. And so just remembering that, like, this is a really, like, to be a good listener really means to love and to meet our students in that way. And I think this can be helpful when there's, I was thinking about this. I, I've been, as I've been prepping for this, I had a student recently whose mom got diagnosed with a pretty s- severe illness, and I didn't know what to say. Like, I just felt overwhelmed and sad for her, and I still do. And like reflective listening really helped me to help her, like, really understand what the feeling was for her because she has a she has a brother who his experience with this is totally different than hers, and so helping to put words and feelings to that was it was able to help her explore, like, how is this actually impacting her? Um, so it's been a really helpful tool for me. I'm wondering what time it is. I think I talked faster than I planned, but um, do you guys have any questions? The next, or after we'll do some questions, we'll take a break, and then we're gonna switch, and it'll be like purely informational. I think we'll talk about kind of mental health first aid and what to do with panic attacks, self-harm, and suicide. So something to look forward to. <laughs> Um, does anyone have any questions about anything I just said? Or I don't know if I'll answer them, but yeah. Yeah, so I think this is, that's a great question. So can we, you ask kind of, can we teach it with, to our high school students or older ones even to trickle down or how can we help that? My pastor, when I was talking to him about this, said if we are a ministry of discipleship, that means teaching others how to love and this is a way to love. And so I think that would be a great tool to kind of, I'm not sure what your context is or what that would look like, but I think it, it's easy to teach and it's like so simple, but so useful, I think. And so I think that like students would really lean onto that and really teaching them like, what does it mean to really listen? So yeah, I think that would be a great resource. Did, did she invite you to come with her in the conversation? Okay. So that, I mean, that's really wonderful that you were able to kind of mediate. It sounds like it was a little bit awkward, but um, which is understandable. We get put in a lot of awkward situations like that. Um, so your question is how would I recommend you empower her in that way? Yeah, because she's able to do that at small group but not with her parent. Oh, that's hard. Um, I do think you going with them is a really, like, a really great tool to be with her in that and help kind of do that. I think sometimes in those situations, too, giving people language for how to have those conversations. So I'm imagining I've had a situation recently where it was really helpful for me, and I'm with you. I'm not a parent, and so I don't know what that's like, but if mom's locking cabinets and doing things like that, there's a lot of shame in mom, like, that's happening, and it's triggering the daughter's shame. And so... So I think I would recommend just having a conversation with them. And I I think it's always helpful in mediation to lay ground rules. Like I'm not going to say you did this, but I'm going to say I felt this way when you did that. So that just puts it like this is what my feeling is, even if it's not real, it's what I feel. um, Not interrupting in the conversation and really letting the other person be heard and kind of giving them some of those basic ground rules that they might not have. And maybe as a mediator, you provided a way to have a new conversation than when mom and daughter are just yelling at each other. But I think having that empathy for mom too, even though that sounds really like a hard situation, that there's gotta be something going on in mom that's making her do that. You know, she can't like that she's gotta like control in that way. <laughs> Does that feel helpful? I was like, okay, it sounds like to and so I think laying those ground rules for those conversations, just can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is your in the yeah, that's a great question. I meant to say that. Um, I have thought about that in my own life because when I feel really heard, when I feel like somebody let me really, like, lay out all of it. I'm a verbal processor, so I need a lot of space to do that, Um, but then I can really be in a place to receive that advice and that questions or that, like, whatever they have to say, and so there's sometimes when you'll ask questions back and forth with reflective listening, and you can do both. I don't think it's a, like, you have to do this, and then you ask questions, then you give advice. You can kind of let it be fluid, Um, but I think that the idea is that we really want them to feel like we de- we know what they're going through. We have a full picture and a full understanding of what's happening, and then we can speak, and you'll have the right to be heard at that point. Uh, does that feel fair, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. It It does, but I've actually been surprised, at least in counseling, I don't do tons of one-on-ones with students at Rock Creek, but I do have a few male students I meet with at Covenant. And I'm surprised at how much it actually does work, Like that they really do want to explore and be heard, and they're excited that someone's asking them about it. Some of these, this feeling wheel and that kind of stuff is we have a poverty of language. We don't know how to put words to our experience, and so some of us is helping them do that. And this tool helps to do that, to put words to that. So I think I have seen a little bit of a difference. The times I've seen that reflective listening doesn't exactly take off is when someone has that kind of inability to connect. Like maybe they feel so depressed that they're not even in the room really. Or they feel so anxious they can't be there. And so that kind of like um, overwhelmed and disconnected. But typically I feel like it does kind of land the same. So... Yeah, that's a good question, like, or just a statement of, like, how can we get parents really on board? I think my bend is, I had a situation recently where I was, like, I I think this mom is feeling really overwhelmed with a lot. Like, her shame is loud, and it's impacting this situation, and so my role, or at least my approach, who knows how it all went down, but I was, like, I'm for you. I just want to remind you I'm on your team. I want to remind you, like, I'm supporting you, and, like, I, and so just reminding them, like, if their shame's loud, you kind, of want, you kind of want to shame them and be like, I can't believe you did that. You know, like, are you kidding me? But instead saying, like, you know, I'm for you. I'm for your daughter. I'm for your relationship. And I just want you to know that I'm, that's always the team I'm on. And so I think that helps to quiet some of that shame because I think parents feel that loudly. And especially when you're this, like, Cool or not so cool. I don't think like I'm that cool. But you're this like person hanging out with their kids, and you get all this FaceTime with them, and they just want to know their kids. And there's this distance to just really remind them like I'm with you and I'm for you. So, with this
1: reformed
0: anthropology that right. Well, Brene Brown's research actually led her back to Jesus, which I think is cool. Like she because forgiveness was the missing piece for her, and she couldn't figure that out, and so. Uh, don't know about Reformed, but it did lead her back to Jesus. She has kind of a hard relationship with the church. But that's a great point because otherwise it can just feel like, oh, you have it and, like, just get rid of it. But I think it is that, like, yes, we are. It's a both, right? Like, the Paul, like, I, I am this, but I'm not this. Like, that's not who I am anymore because I'm born again in Christ. And so I think it's, like, holding that tension of, like, that's not the end of the story, That we're completely depraved, and like God has redeemed us and we belong. And so we don't belong because we're good, but we belong because He chose us. And so um, I don't know if that helps answer that question, but it helped me because I think otherwise you're like, okay, I guess I just like get rid of my shame, or I'm not sure what to do with it. But I think remembering it in the biblical story is helpful.